Welcome back to Every Mother's Son and our latest installation of Will's World, where we bring you monthly breakdowns on some of the most significant connections to William Shakespeare and his texts. You can expect to hear us share about how the world influenced his writings, or about how his writings influenced the world, or maybe both. In October, we dug deep into what was going bump in the night in Elizabethan England, and how the last many millennia of religious lore had been filtered into Shakespeare's more eerie plays. In November, the month of elections, we will be visiting some of the most prolific moments in America's rise to the global superpower it is today. Please, join us in this discussion on how the government has used Shakespeare as a tool, and on a turn of the same coin, been scrutinized with his words. Hey! How's it going, everybody? Hi! Hello. Welcome back! Good to see everyone. Um, I'm excited to talk about this, considering we just, um, in most of the United States, had midterm elections this week, and or last week, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of exciting to sure discuss. Yeah, and you guys have read uh, chapters of this and discussed them before, right? Earlier, before I joined the pod, or? We haven't. We've been talking about reading... Um, this book, which, uh, by the way, is James Shapiro's book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. Um, we've been looking and hoping to read chapters and talk about them, but this is the first one, so I'm I'm super exciting. Excited, I suppose. I'm excited, uh, too. <laughs> I think we talked about... I can't even, like, keep my words like straight. Shakespeare in the Colonies, like, over a year oh, ago Oh, that's now. what it was. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then we, you know, I think, Amanda, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were just kind of looking at, okay, yeah, how, you know, were there folios that made it over to the to the original colonies and, and that kind of stuff? And then James Shapiro's name just kept popping up. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, obviously we need to learn more about this genius and uh, and he's written so many yeah. books about Shakespeare like there's probably at least seven um, the the one that we're talking about today or at least an essay from the book focuses on how Shakespeare's influenced um, the Americas like all of them but more specifically the United States of America mm -hmm. um, and how Shakespeare's played like an integral role through our very young country's development in the last three, four hundred years. And I think when you read Divided America, you think like, oh yeah, we're in a divided America right now. But really, mm -hmm. he's talking about, we have the same kind of division today that we did at the founding of the country, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this book was written a little over two years ago. Um, it was released back in 2020. So it's kind of interesting how it um, it's really being released and talking about things that, you know, were becoming very divisive, you know, when Trump was still president in the 2020 election. Like, it's just a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Current, mm, I Timely, guess? yeah. Yeah. Timely, yes, that's perfect. I know. I, I'm almost wondering what would this book would have been like <laughs> if uh, if it were written right after January 6th. What else could there have been to talk about? Totally. 
Well, I'm interested in reading, because uh, so far I just read this chapter, but I'm excited to see what else that he dives into. Uh, but this specific chapter that we focused on for this week was chapter five, which is on immigration. And mm-hmm. it focuses on the late 1800s to early 1900s in America, mm-hmm. where some of our Im- immigration policies were changing. I actually learned a lot that I didn't know. Uh, Me from too. This chapter. I was. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about this later on, but I was like really interested to keep reading about how immigration policy is still being discussed very similarly to the way that it was in the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, this essay uh, really dives into like 1880s, 1890s is where we're going to start. Um, discussing how many people were calling for immigration reform. Uh, A lot of people felt there were too many immigrants coming over from, uh, let's say, undesirable countries, um, as they believed, and how Shakespeare was a really big um, thing on a lot of politicians' minds, and they were trying to use his work and his words to justify this new kind of racist view on immigration oh yeah there was pretty much yeah the pretty much there were some politicians who only really wanted anglo-saxon people Mm -hmm. coming into the country and anyone else they were highly critical of um one thing that was really interesting to me which kind of i found very relatable to today there was a line about you know some people's reason for wanting the stricter immigration was rooted in that xenophobia and some of it was political Mm -hmm. like there were i think it was the republican party they were being they were losing their working class voters and it's Mm -hmm. kind of that thing today where you pin a lot of these working class issues on immigrants and you take the pressure off of the politicians themselves um so yeah in these in the late 1800s where the topic of immigration was really big. A lot of people wanted to to make stricter immigration laws. One of the central people that gets focused on is Henry Cabot, Henry Cabot Lodge, who introduced mm-hmm. a bill that would require literacy for incoming citizens. Um, and yeah. actually, which we're going to discuss later, the way this connects to Shakespeare is in 1916, there was an adaptation of The Tempest by Mm -hmm. Percy McKay called The Caliban by the Yellow Sands. Uh, It was about Prospero attempting to educate Caliban. Uh, We'll dive into that a little bit more later. But basically, The Tempest was being used as this sort of idealist sort of American society, and they were kind of using Caliban as this character of, like, you know, some people can never assimilate. Some people can never um, mm-hmm. be one of us, sort of. It was kind of an us versus them sort of thing. And it the chapter talks about a lot about this idea of, you know, kind of letting go, anyone coming in kind of letting go of their own culture and coming into this mm-hmm. American culture and that kind of, like, hyper-nationalist sort of idea like in after this performance of Caliban and the Yellow Sand, I believe it says they played the national anthem. Like after that they performance, did. Uh, I f- 
what do they call this specific performance? They did it at one in St. Louis, too, that this guy had also written. Um, I kept calling it like a mask. To, yes, a mask. Um, and they, it was so uh, moving at the St. Louis one that I think he felt he had to do it at this. Oh boy. This one yeah. in New York and Boston. Um for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with The Tempest, um, we thought we'd give you a brief summary of what the play is about, um, because a lot of this essay really does revolve around how people were trying to use The Tempest, like Jess said, to justify these xenophobic and racist immigration policies. Um, so this is a uh, summary stolen from shakespeare.org.uk, uh, which is an awesome website if anybody wants deeper information about plays and different productions. Um, but they say, Prospero uses magic to conjure a storm and torment the survivors of a shipwreck, including the King of Naples and Prospero's treacherous brother, Antonio. Prospero's slave, Caliban, plots to rid himself of his master, but is thwarted by Prospero's spirit servant, Ariel. The king's young son, Ferdinand, thought to be dead, falls in love with Prospero's daughter, Miranda. Their celebrations are cut short when Prospero confronts his brother and reveals his identity as the, un as the usurped Duke of Milan. The families are reunited and all conflict is resolved. Prospero grants Ariel his freedom and prepares to leave the island. Uh, which, spoiler alert, sorry, it's a 600-year-old play, though. So. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the basis of the play. Um, while it doesn't really sound like Caliban is that large of a part of the play from most summaries, he does play a large part and has been the basis of a lot of political theater, I feel like, when people are doing this play. Uh, Connor and I did this um, four years ago, our senior year. I know our senior year in college and Connor actually played Caliban. Do you want to talk about some of the research that you did yeah. about colonization and and all that when you were preparing for the role? Um, I, I think I did an OK job preparing and performing <laughs> for the role. I thought you were great. Thanks. Um, but I. I, it came at a really interesting time um, because Amanda and I, tell me if this sounds right, we had just auditioned and then um, and then immediately after that, and Jess, but even though, so Jess, oh Jess was not at school with us, uh, but all three of us uh, spent more time with each other at uh, Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts mm -hmm. in the summer of 2018. And then we went into doing that play. Mm -hmm. I totally forgot I, about that. I think the way <laughs> I Oh, I did. I saw that, that play. I saw you guys. Exactly. Yeah. We were, I'm pretty sure the play was cast and set. Oh, yeah, it certainly was before we even um, went for training in Massachusetts. And so. Do you know what's funny? I wasn't planning to stay in the play when we got back really? to school. <laughs> what happened? I thought I was going to have to drop out because it was too many credits. Oh, you know what? I, I feel like um, I remember you talking to me about this. But you're so glad yeah. you stayed. I am. It was a great experience. Um, and so I just had, you know, my mind that whole summer was just in full Shakespeare mode. And so I just mm -hmm. couldn't, you know, as much as I wanted to focus on the work in front of me, I just couldn't help but think about um, Caliban and about The Tempest. 
And, and while the chapter we were reading about is about immigration, I feel like I'd be doing it a disservice not to talk about um, thinking about Caliban and his um, mother and his, his island as um, a, a victim of colonization. So, I mean, the, like one of the most quoted lines in the entire play, uh, Miranda says, Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And it's mm -hmm. written right around the time that uh, colonization was, was happening in the Americas, the beginning of the 17th century. And, and so people think that's the beginning, or at least like the most clear-cut example, if you're analyzing the play, uh, to make it look like it's about America's colonization, right? But that's not specifically about Caliban, that's just about the act of colonization. Um, but the way that the island works in the play is that we have this witch who is banished to the island, and uh, her name is Sycorax, and she is pregnant, and she's pregnant with Caliban. And Caliban is born, and Sycorax uh, dies, and Caliban is left behind with this island that is his now. He's pretty much the sole inhabitant, minus Ariel, um, who has been uh, imprisoned away for poor behavior, and, and some other unnamed spirits on the island. And he has his own religion and spirituality, and Caliban feels like he is the, the loving ruler of this land. He knows, you know, the brine pits. He knows everything about this place. And then in comes this um, uh, usurped Duke of Milan, Prospero, the mighty wizard, and takes that from him. Uh, it's really a shame. And Caliban doesn't know how to feel about it. He's really conflicted because, um, you know, he's, he's feeling like he's being assimilated um, into Prospero's culture that he's bringing to the island um, and so he is being taught language uh, yeah he says <clears throat> you taught me language and my profidant is I know how to curse the red plague rid you for learning me your language so he's conflicted with okay it's a it's a cool thing that I'm experiencing new cultures and, and getting new things but he's also realizing that he's being um, kicked out and um, and that his own culture is going through a pretty massive and distinctive erasure. And um, they, it even goes so far as to use drugging. He says um, that Prospero would give me water with berries in it. I think that's implying that feed him wine, which sounds like a nice thing. It sounds like a gift. But I think if you start to think of Caliban as a victim to um, this bully, it's just another way to gain control over him beyond his magic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a more, it's a more uh, earthy and serious way to gain control over a population. And what's kind of interesting is that um, all of this is being written about in the, the early 17th century. And so people think it's being written about the Americas, and it probably was. Um, but later on, this kind of story almost plays out again. Um, the eastern coast of Africa, including uh, Somalia, Eritrea, 
Libya, Ethiopia. Okay, Libya is like northern Africa, but Ethiopia, it's all in the northeastern part of Africa. My friend was telling me about this because I'm asking him, okay, why, why is there Italian food there? It's because just like the Italians, Milan or Milan and, um, and Naples are coming to this island in the Tempest, the Italians came to uh, communities in East and Northern Africa and, and colonized them and did things to them like what is happening in the play. And so there's been a, while it was probably written mostly about the Americas in the past few centuries, there's been a big reclamation to make this story about um, the African people and their colonization. Uh, there's a tiny, tiny island um, even further east, because uh, Madagascar is, is off the eastern coast of Africa, way southeast. And then even further east of there is Mauritius. And there was uh, a group there that was so impacted by Shakespeare's work that um, this fellow, Dev Virasami, adapted the play into, uh, adapted Tempest into his own play called Tufan, which is a reclamation of this story as a, as a group that is colonized by the French and um, changes lots of characters' names and puts in some of their own traditional culture characters like um, Stefano and Trinculo become Caspalto and Damaro, which are um, traditional to their culture. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's inspiring that people have been able to turn this story um, into their own, um, but it's it's disappointing that it had to go that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. One thing but I found really interesting about the chapter, kind of thinking about what everything that you just said with your experience, um, the, it was this comment about how Shakespeare's comedies often resolve with someone being excluded and that kind of mm -hmm. being the revolution. Mm -hmm resolution is someone is sort of otherized um and i've seen the plays done in a way where kind of the the people who are included are celebrated but i've also seen i saw the merchant of venice in a way where we're very critical of the people and we empathize with those being excluded um so that just kind of that sort of reworking made me think of that and that really, mm -hmm. I don't know, that was something that I had never thought about that as being kind of like a common theme in the comedies, but it definitely totally is right. something that's there. And I think like modern stagings, there's ways where we can like be a little bit more critical or kind of look at all sides of the I think story. about um, Twelfth Night all the time. And you, that's immediately what I thought of when he said that just now is, how Malvolio is like the other by the end of the mm -hmm. play and how horribly he's treated and how Elena, another one in our cohort, would always point that out to us that like his mistreatment is like gross and by the end of the play he is like totally rejected from the rest of the group. I'm glad you brought the exclusion of Caliban up because I was interested to read that too because even doing the play I never thought about it like that. I've never thought about it as a purposeful exclusion of of someone from the plot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exclusion. It's um, 
there's marginalization. I mean, Prospero um, kind of uses spirits that are there. I mean, are they people, quote unquote? No. But could you argue that they pretty much are? I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if that were true, then, you know, he uses them for masks and says, you know, claps his hands and says, go, and treats them like slaves. Mm -hmm. um, and and although he loves Ariel, quote unquote, but has a big problem with me, has a big problem with Caliban, um, he, there are still many spirits who get um, pushed to the side and are exiled from, mm -hmm. from the good things in this world. But as an immigrant, um, there's a lot to be said about how Caliban can fit into that role as well. I think one of his most famous speeches, if you listen to it, um, I remember I was in New York after training at Shakespeare and Company, and um, I think, oh my god, what is that song lyric? Um, concrete jungle where dreams are made true. Someone help oh, me, someone help me. Yeah. Uh, I the, don't new, even know um, the New York song? Yeah, New York. <laughs> oh, oh, we're going to yeah, get copyrighted. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, if you think about that in, in the American dream and what that means for an immigrant, well, for all people in the United States, but especially for an immigrant, and listen to the words, be not afeard, the aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had wakened after long sleep will make me sleep again, and then in dreaming the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that when I waked I cried to dream again. Clouds methought would open and show riches. Dream, and, and just the, the use of the word dream and the, and the, the kind of... Um, uh, encouraging, soothing idea that there's a dream alive, and even though by the end of the play, Caliban is like the most helpless character, he's clinging on to this dream that one day he will mm -hmm. open his eyes and his world will be changed. And that is a dream for so many immigrants. A um, hundred years ago, like what uh, Shapiro is talking about in his book, there were immigrants coming from Italy, from uh, I think uh, Jewish immigrants, right? Um, today, I think the fo the focus has been shifted a lot to people coming from the South, uh, Central and South America. Um, but it's the mm -hmm. same it's the same dream that people are holding on to, and it's the same one that Caliban was kind of holding on to 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's interesting to talk about the kinds of uh, immigrants that were coming in a hundred years ago as opposed to the kind that are coming now like where they're from mm -hmm. but it seems like the narrative is really the same it is it totally uh, is from both right and uh jess we're going to talk about caliban by the yellow sands here but that reading about what that play was about i'm like wow the narrative will never change they're always going to say the same things about people coming from different countries like they can't read they're criminals um there's like a big play in this caliban by the yellow sands about caliban trying to rape 
Miranda and like never being able to control himself, which we all know uh, during Trump's um, presidency Ooh. was a really big thing about. Oh yeah, we all know some of his and murderers. His favorite quotes, yeah, yeah, or his big quotes. Yeah, yeah it into my mind. Yeah, and it's very. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's just very. Um, I don't know. Interesting is maybe not the word, but it's when we're talking about like Calvin and the Yellow Sands and like a lot of these like anti-immigration politicians, it was very focused on like maintaining this Anglo-Saxon culture, which basically they brought to a land full of cultures that were already here and kind of erasing those Mm -hmm. cultures. And then as new people are coming in and, you know, wanting to also come to this place, wanting them then to erase aspects of their culture to fit into this so kind of like erasing another culture and then like forcing everyone else to kind of assimilate to their way of life mm-hmm. and I don't know it just I mean it would be it's heinous for them um, I'm thinking back to was it Lodge's idea for the to send out the the constitution or whatever it is but in in the native person's language and then that's going to test their literacy and um and then if they pass that literacy exam then they can come to the u.s and but that's beyond xenophobic it's just classes it's just saying unless you're able to read and write you're even even in your own language um mm-hmm. your oral history is not worth anything here it's interesting to me um to see how far back this sort of thing goes, like the idea of eugenics um, that Hitler was really very into um, during the Second World War. I mean, started in the United States with shit like this, you know? Like, while you can't read, you must not be very smart. Mm. We don't want people who are below a certain intelligence level to be, you know, coming over here and reproducing with our citizens like that seems wrong there was another people section still believe and, that today yeah. yeah well and there was mm-hmm. a section of the chapter i think it was Cab- henry cabot lodge where there was an incident with lynching i believe it was italian immigrants there was a lynching yes, yes. and he was basically justifying yes. it and blaming the victims and saying this is kind of the result of this happening like there's the these like butting head of like cultures and almost like this is like the inevitable response to that like thoughts and prayers but maybe if we weren't letting these kind of people here mm-hmm. then this sort of thing wouldn't be happening yeah you know it's just it's and horrible. it's like the narrative changes like the exact targets of that sort of idea mm-hmm. changes but you know the kind of heart of it stays the same which is why i love reading stuff like this and i just think the number one way to combat that kind of thinking is learning about history and being like oh we've done this before and this is how it turned out like this is why we need to read like stuff a like couple this. times yeah. <laughs> like this is all re- exactly. if you like study history and you look back it's all repetitive and you know that's why i think people don't want us to be learning the truth about some of the mm-hmm. some of our history in school because it is you kind of do see these parallels and be like oh no, we shouldn't be doing this because we've done this before and it was mm-hmm. bad. Like, 
Well, and I think it's so amazing of James Shapiro to release this book at the time that he released it, because reading this essay is like, it could be like reading an essay about immigration now, like how our politicians now feel about it and how they talk about it. It doesn't really feel any different to me than like what you hear on the news or what you read in articles like it's the same thing just different yeah you know races of and people. the mm-hmm. and the idea of having a scapegoat basically to escape criticism mm-hmm. of you know maybe not being the best for the working class being like oh well these are people that are essentially taking jobs that could be yours or things like that instead of mm-hmm. like you know owning up to their own mistakes or you know doing their job to create the best economy possible it's like okay who can we use as a scapegoat right now who is an easy Mm -hmm. target i think it's so interesting that for basically 30 years um and this is something they talk about in this essay that you know, different sections of the government were denying these bills that were being proposed to, like, you know, have literacy exams, have people, you know, prove that they can do this or have this sort of lineage or this sort of thing. Like, people were like, that's not really okay. Mm -hmm. Let's not do this. And it took 40 years of the same rhetoric being, like, shoved down people's throat before they finally were like, okay, well, I guess, yeah let's go with your way, your kind of racist view on this. Um, I'm going to say, I think it's interesting, too, to, like, see the the evolution of the questions that were asked when you were coming in. Um, I don't know what you guys thought about this when you were reading, but, like, at the end of the 19th century, they stopped just asking questions like, your country of origin, what do you do for a living, and what is your physical and mental well-being like and instead started asking like what's your religion what language do you speak where were you born where was your mother born where were her parents born like these questions really just to narrow down if you would make like an ideal genetic specimen to be coming here that's kind of how i read it yeah well and another sort of interesting thing i've found about the chapter is how like these people that we're talking about that are trying to introduce these bills and trying to make it harder to come here were using Shakespeare and Shakespeare's language to sort of justify this way of thinking and in the same town at around the same time there were they talked uh, Shapiro talks about a couple other productions that were going on there were like Yiddish productions of Shakespeare mm-hmm. there were all black productions of Shakespeare and just this idea that they're fighting so hard to use Shakespeare's words as justification for this. And, you know, I think there are definitely things to be critical about in some of these plays, but it's also poetry and poetry is so universal. And mm-hmm. so trying to use these poetic plays that do have these really universal stories that can mean a lot to everybody and try to use them for as justification to exclude people I don't think really holds up and I like there's a uh, a quote from what is it Thomas More that I think yeah. shows Shakespeare at least um, being seeming to be more pro-immigration and 
pro-welcoming people. Shapiro kind of writes, I'm going to qualify each time James Shapiro because there are some not so good Shapiros in our book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait a second. Um, but it, he, uh, uh, he talks about how it really um, says something that Shakespeare would have written this speech, especially with how xenophobic the time he was coming up was and how widely accepted it was that it was okay to think like that for him to write a passage like this is you know kind of really says something about what he felt i'm just gonna read this little section from shakespeare in a divided america because i think that it's really telling about what shakespeare felt about immigration Um, And James Shapiro writes, Positioning Shakespeare as a foe of immigrants is all the more surprising given what he himself had written about refugees. Victorian scholars first identified the playwright's handwriting, Hand D, in a collaborative manuscript of a play called Sir Thomas More. Shakespeare's likely contribution concerned More's reaction to the violent anti-immigrant riots in London in 1517. He wrote a powerful scene in which Moore admonishes nativists who would put down strangers, kill them, cut their throats, possess their houses, including perhaps the throats of Richard Rowland's immigrant ancestors. Imagine, Moore says, and this is a quote from the the play, that you see the wretched strangers their babies at their backs and their poor luggage plodding to the ports and coast for transportation and that you sit as kings in your desires authority quite silent by your brawl and you in rough of your opinions clothed um it the whole speech which actually we'll be posting on social media around the time that you're listening to this episode because um there is a really really beautiful version of this read by Ian McKellen. Um, And it's very much like, how can you sit here and pretend that you are so high and mighty like a king and just ignore these people living in your town who have struggled to get here? Like it's, it's beautiful. Uh, I love that, that last line and you and your rough of your opinions clothed. Mm hmm. He had very clear feelings on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it just makes it like frustrating to see, you know, kind of picking and choosing language, which I think is something else we can all kind of see in our society, like picking and choosing Mm -hmm. language to sort of fit a narrative and ignoring the bigger picture of humanity and kind of, you know, thinking a little bit more mm. about I don't know, thinking a little bit more critically about it. Mm-hmm. What do we call that in AP government? A sound bite or something? Yeah. In political ads today. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Jess, do you want to talk a little bit more about Calvin by the Yellow Sands um, and what was going on with Percy McKay's adaptation? Yeah, so um, basically it was a production in 1916 in which Prospero attempts to educate Caliban um, and in this production Caliban was basically 
supposed to symbolize immigrants and um it was it sounded like um i didn't actually see or read any of this specific production but what it was sounding like from shapiro's take on it was kind of the end result was that they couldn't be assimilated they couldn't be fully taught um you know they kind of used like caliban's like treatment of miranda um and some of these things. And there was another really interesting, let me see if I can find it. Um, something I kind of had questions about, but wait, let me see. I, while you're looking for that, I was going to say that there's the woman who writes a poem sort of about it. And who says that if he was trying to make a case for us to allow open immigration, that he failed. In doing that. And I was curious because based on what James Shapiro was writing about the play, it sounded like he was anti-immigration. Percy McKay was. Would you agree, Connor? That sounded Connor? that way, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, but then when I looked up Caliban by the Yellow Sands like on the internet and was looking more about it there, it was, it was kind of saying, well, what does it say here? McKay's ideology... Um, he represents the journey of mankind and its quest for art. It is a simple enough idea with many implications and interpretations, making the audience a necessity. So they, I don't. I think we don't have the script in front of us, mm-hmm. but based off of what we were reading from, um, like the program and some of the things that were included in the mask and and um, and just the idea that by the end of the, the of the original play, The Tempest, that Caliban is someone who has been unable to learn how to you know, mm-hmm. be more civilized or whatever you want to call it. Um, whatever Prospero wants to call it. Um, that That's clearly part of what McKay was writing there. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that's his personal belief or that's what he was commissioned to write about is hard to determine. Oh, okay, so I kind of found... Um, so yeah, Shapiro talks about how McKay's exact views on immigration were unclear um Mm -hmm. but there was uh this little passage um the recollections of cecil sharp who that might have been who you were just talking about an english folklorist employed by mckay to help with the masks elizabethan interlude reveal how deep the chasm between the creative team and the locals who were involved as well as how momentary the trans transformative nature of the performance turned out to be for them so it sounds like because there were a lot of um i think a lot of different races involved in this production uh so Mm -hmm. i was just interested by that language and like the chasm between like the cast the locals creative team and how i don't know it just made me curious to like dig a little bit more into that Mm -hmm. um but yeah basically i think even regardless of what McKay's views on immigration were, I think it's still that idea of like culture erasure of like kind of everyone coming here, just assimilating to one culture and kind of letting go the pieces of their own was something Mm -hmm. it talked about McKay kind of implying with this piece. Which is what we've been talking about in the United States even today, about how we're becoming more and more of a melting pot. Mm-hmm. And some people see that as a scary thing. Yeah, and I... Yeah. It just... I don't know. To me, like, the beautiful thing about 
a melting pot is getting this kind of combination on like everybody bringing their own culture and their own experience and like that being a really beautiful thing rather than trying yes. to like force this sense of oneness um mm-hmm. you know america like we've always been a culture of immigrants and different cultures and i think that is like one of the things that could be really amazing but i feel like there's always people who want to squash that and kind of center mm-hmm. center one type of religion one type of family one type of way of being and i think in 2022 we're seeing a lot of criticism of that and trying to like decenter those things mm-hmm. and allow everybody yeah. a seat at the table pretty much. And so I just, I have a, a friend who's biracial and we talk about this all the time. Um, his great grandfather or his grandfather moved here from Mexico and, um, and long story short, his dad is Mexican and his dad was born here and was specifically not taught Spanish. Um, and you could say, you know, someone would point and be like, oh, we're unifying under one language so we communicate with each other. But no, the, if you ask the family, the real reason behind that was so that he wasn't harassed for mm-hmm. being an immigrant. That's sad. That's like, it's a it's a micro-erasure, but that's erasure in itself. And yeah, I, I don't of, think oneness you know. has to be... No, because I like get what you're saying, like... That's, you know, yeah. what people will say the goal is, but I don't think oneness means erasing who you are. I think it just means, like, the freedom for everyone to be who they are and still just be able to connect because we're all human yeah. and we can connect with each other, but you don't have to erase, like, what makes you a specific, like, special, per- like, the things that make you you, you know? Totally. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal. We just need to find the balance. Uh, well, we don't. We know where the balance lies. We need to get the people in charge to to find that there. Hey, there is a balance there. To acknowledge the balance for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, our final question of the podcast was: Do we feel like these views and you know ideas with Shakespeare's work could still hold effect in American politics today? And I think, based on the conversation, yeah. It's it's. Yeah. There's no if ands, or buts about it, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I hope we read more chapters of this and talk about them more because I think it really is such a timely timely book, mm-hmm. but also very uh, shows that we, as much as we think we've changed, some things are still very much the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean, I can't speak for James Shapiro but I like to think that that's his point with the book is that it's all the same it's been the same since Shakespeare was alive and it's the same now um Um, it's kind of funny how old things rear their heads so mm -hmm. it's with the cyclic nature of history and all its problems it brings up as soon as we think something is irrelevant it will be again with the overturning of, I don't think there's any talk about anything to do with like Roe v. Wade or, or like bodily autonomy rights in the book, but um, I think that'll be his. I'm sure next James book. Shapiro has things to talk about that too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too part of the reason the division seems so strong right now is that 
a lot of people are recognizing these cycles and some people want to break those cycles and some people are pushing hard against that. And Mm -hmm. that leads to tension. I agree. Um, On that note, I think uh, this is a great place to pause discussion, but we would love to hear um, your guys' thoughts on immigration policies, The Tempest, um, other Shakespeare plays that you think could relate to this discussion. We'd love to hear it all. Productions that, you know, highlight this. We'd love to see those, too. Um, You can find us on Twitter at uh, Jess, what's our Twitter? I think it's Will's World Pod. I'm I sorry, so. I don't that know it exactly right. offhand. Uh, Will's World Pod sounds right. Uh, Twitter, our Instagram at um, Will's World. You can find us at Will's World History Podcast on TikTok or just email us at everymotherssonproductions at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from all of you. And read this book. And read this book. Yes. Uh, if anybody knows James Shapiro, tell him that we love him. We love his We're books. having fun with his um, book, yes. Yes, and we'll be talking about more of this one and more of his other ones in the future. Um, we uh, will catch you guys all next month. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.